Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your telepathic horse speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about Cats Have No Lord by Will Shetterly. This is a book that was originally published in 1985, though the copy that I have is an edition that was revised in 2008. This is my very first Will Shetterly book, though I do remember seeing his novel elsewhere, prominently displayed in my childhood bookstore in the early 1990s. Mostly, though, I'm aware of Shetterly because of the the shared universe anthologies he's edited with his wife, the the writer Emma Boll. These are the Leavec books, and, and there are five of them, but even then, I really only know of these because Gene Wolfe participated in two of them. And we haven't gotten to those stories on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast yet, but I, I am looking forward to them. They're a lot of, lot of fun, and it's an interesting thing to do to talk about uh, shared universe stories as well. And in fact, it might actually be fun to do a whole series on the first of these anthologies. There are also stories by Charles DeLint and Jane Yolen, uh, among others, a lot of big names in that anthology and in that volume in particular. This is probably the only book that we've done so far that I've done without much purpose, either because it won a Patreon vote or because I had some sort of personal interest in the book or the writer, and I really didn't know what to expect going into it. But I did enjoy the book, and I found some interesting motifs. Uh, Well, we'll get to those, of course. But mostly, I found it interesting by comparison with Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which was published right around the same time and and has some real commonalities. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit in the themes and motifs segment as well. But before we get there, we need to recap the book. So let's just get into it. Let's just jump right into Cats Have No Lord. As you will have discerned for yourself, the reason I think we'll want to compare this book with Dragons of Autumn Twilight is that Cats Have No Lord is likewise a secondary world fantasy work. The story takes place in a wholly imaginary world, uh, what I'm also calling high fantasy. Unlike with Dragonlance, however, we know very little about this world. Shetterly does not really take very many of his world-building cues from Tolkien. Instead, he really draws more on sword and sorcery world-building ideas. We do not know the name of the world, but we do know that we are only seeing a small slice of it. And indeed, while the story is going to put the entire universe at stake, the setting is actually quite local. So we are in a pseudo-medieval setting. People have bladed weapons and steel armor. There are castles. There are guilds. But it is also a high fantasy setting in that there are elves and quite a bit of magic and even a heavy dose of what we might call the supernatural. The immediate context for the story is that there is an expansive human empire called Gordia. More on them later. Uh, There are settlements of human barbarians on the fringes of that empire and also a, a weaker human state. But there is also the Elven Lands, and Gordia and the Elves are in some kind of long-running Cold War that occasionally runs hot, and, and that threat looms in the background of the story. But the story is not actually going to be about relations between elves and humans. The, the plot is not geopolitical in nature as Hour of the Dragon was. Rather, the plot is going to be cosmic. And here's the deal. This secondary world is the explicit creation of an intelligent being, God, who was just trying things out. Creation was just kind of an experiment to see how things might go. And now she is ready to wrap up the experiment. But the nature of the creation is such that she put some of her power into the thing she created and is now running into some problems with that. Uh, this, of course, is the same problem that Sauron has. And, and also Dream faces this as well at the beginning of The Sandman. 
And the problem is that she created the world out of herself, and in order to reconstitute herself, she has to entirely dismantle the world, right? She has to break it all apart in order to put herself back together. It should be simple enough, but one of her creations has gone missing. It somehow managed to get someplace outside of her creation, and so she can't return to her bodily form. Fortunately, though, she has some agents in the world in the form of a a monastic order that knows exactly what they need to do to find the missing creation. That missing creation, by the way, is the Lord of Cats, and hence the title, Cats Have No Lord. Part of the conceit of this world is that every type of creature has a lord, uh, something of an anthropomorphic archetype, a kind of platonic form or something like that. Uh, The Lord of Wolves, for example, is going to be an antagonist in this story. But first, before we meet him, let's meet the protagonists who are going to search for the Lord of Cats. So we have this monastic order who have special access to God's knowledge and can see the future. Uh, They call this the weave after the, the very common metaphor of the future as a type of cloth that is being woven by combining the threads of all our individual lives. What this monastic order intends to do is to assemble a band of unlikely heroes to go out and find the the Lord of Cats. First up is our main character. This is a human scoundrel named Lizelle. Uh, Lizelle grew up in a circus, but she has way grander ambitions, and she's been engaging in a variety of semi-legal, sometimes downright criminal enterprises to advance her material station in the world uh, to get rich, basically. Lizelle is not alone, however. She is a package deal with Darkwind, her telepathic horse. And and really, to be more precise, Darkwind is actually half horse and half unicorn. Uh, That's where the sentience and the the telepathy come from. The third member of this party is a half-elf named Cat's Eye Yellow. Uh, It's not his given name, but he's taken this name because he has calico eyes. One of them, a yellow cat's eye, though he wears a patch over this one. And Cat's Eye is even more of a scoundrel than Lizelle, or at least he's more open about it, because he doesn't really belong in society due to his half-elven heritage. This is a story that we've seen on Atas before, of course. Fourth up is Thras, a barbarian who has left his home village. And finally, we get the monk Mary. He's the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. And this, this orchestration comes at an inn, of course, where Mary is basically playing the role of GM, the role of game master here in assembling the party. Though at the time, he just thinks of this as hiring Lizelle and Cat's Eye. Uh, Thras and, and Darkwing are going to join the party later. But there is a catch, and the catch is this. Lizelle is on the run from the law because she has recently been caught stealing from a lord that she was sleeping with while also pretending to be from the nobility herself and having even more recently escaped from jail. More importantly, though, the law is not really after her so much as after what she stole, which is a moderately valuable mist stone necklace. Ordinarily, a necklace like this wouldn't be worth the trouble, but the Empress of Gordia wants it because even though mist stones aren't all that valuable as jewelry, they have some secret magical properties that she needs. Or at least, that's what she tells people, and it's what we believe for much of the story. But it turns out that there is way more to this world that we don't find out until late in the third act. When God ordered the world, besides creating anthropomorphic lords, she also created a position called the Wisest One. And the wisest one is exactly that, exactly what it says on the box. It's an individual who will be granted special access to all knowledge, along with uh, some other superpowers. 
And this person is supposed to work on behalf of all sentient beings. And this person also has always been an elf. Uh, We don't really meet any elves in this story, but I think we're meant to understand that they have different and and maybe better mental strength than humans. And there's a, a risk of a human going insane if she tries to become the wisest one. Now, there's been a vacancy in this position for quite a long time, and the world as Shatterly presents it in this book, the world is is fallen. We're meant to infer that the totalitarian expansion of the Empire Gordia is both bad and recent, that it's it's something that is happening because the world is not being properly managed, because there is no wisest one. But okay, so how does this intersect with the miststone that Lazelle has stolen and that the Empress very clearly wants? Well, the Miststone is how you become the wisest one, and so she wants it so that she can use this power to conquer the entire world and establish a worldwide police state. And so our heroes are busy trying to evade capture by the Empress's forces while also going on their mission. Uh, And this mission, this involves climbing a mountain that is essentially the top of the world, from which they should be able to use some magic to find the Lord of Cats. But the Empress is not the only antagonist. There are also some supernatural forces who are opposed to the plan to find the Lord of Cats because they don't particularly want to see the world destroyed and their lives ended. And these are the Lord of Wolves and then the demon Asphoriel. In the end, of course, our heroes do make it to the top of the world and they do free the Lord of Cats. But at the same time, Asphoriel betrays the Lord of Wolves and sends him to the the place outside creation where the Lord of Cats was just very recently imprisoned. And so that means that God is still missing a component of creation and therefore creation itself will remain intact for now, at least. Lizelle ends up defeating the Empress in a uh, mano-a-mano combat uh, and is now herself the wisest one, though she does not want that job, and so she hands it off to a minor character and just goes back to her life. And there's also been a little bit of romance brewing between her and Cat's Eye, and it looks like that's going to work out too in the end. So a happy ending for our heroes. Two villains, the, the Empress and the Lord of Wolves, that have been removed from the world, and life can go on. All right, let's get into some themes. I want to start our discussion here by talking about the appearance of socialist ideology in this book. It is all over the place, and it's hard to miss, but I especially want to talk about this because it's what Will Shetterly has been doing with his life instead of writing fantasy novels for the last 20 years. Shetterly ran for governor of Minnesota in 1994, though not as a likely candidate since he was representing the Grassroots Party, which was focused on the legalization of marijuana. But since then, he's been really active as a writer of political essays, and he's even the one who popularized the term social justice warrior. Now, socialist ideology does not appear in this book in any kind of dogmatic way. This is not a Heinlein-esque political screed. And the plot, as, as we've seen, the, the plot is not directly about a political system or about writing a new constitution in the way that Heinlein or Kim Stanley Robinson or even Gene Wolfe have done in their own speculative fiction books. Really, we get most of this in the book in the form of social critiques given to us by members of the underclass, which almost all our heroes are from. Most of this is directed at Gordia and at the Empress of Gordia, and I think we can just go through a few examples. The threat that she poses as she attempts to conquer the entire world is one of the motivations for the fantasy quest, and in this way, she's very much like Sauron. But where in The Lord of the Rings this is presented as a grave threat to life itself, here it's it's not. Or really, maybe I should say that while it is presented this way by some of the characters, not everyone is buying it. Uh, Cat's Eye explains that life under the Empress would be much the same as life under any ruler. Those in power change, but for those who have nothing, life continues as usual. 
For Cat's Eye, this is just a Game of Thrones. It won't have any impact on anyone except the ruling class, and the impact it will have is merely over which members of the owner class are also the rulers and which aren't. The socioeconomic system will not have changed in any way. It's going to remain a pyramid in which those at the top own most of the wealth, while those at the bottom, the vast majority of people, will own very little. And so it's just a question of who's at the top. And we see this critique as well in a subplot about a revolution, about uh, an attempt to overthrow the empress by members of Gordia's elite. The leader of this revolution explains that he wants to institute a better government in Gordia, but his interlocutor, uh, this is an enslaved wizard, disagrees. He thinks that this is a horrible mischaracterization of what Norin, uh, that's the name of the leader, that this is a horrible mischaracterization of what Norin intends. Instead, he points out that what Norin wants is not a better government, just a different ruler and a different political faction in charge for a little while. It's the same idea presented by Katzai. It's the idea that this is not real change. It's just turnover that only affects people who already have power in the form of wealth. And this wizard tells Norin that this is just silly. He tells him that what he really needs to do is go sit in his room for a few months and think about government and think about political philosophy and then come back to him with some better ideas than this uh, monarchy. And that's what we get. There, there isn't really any promotion of a specific political ideology or specific policy positions, just some snide remarks asking us to think about what we mean by the word government and to consider who we think government is for. Also, the suggestion that we could all stand to do a little more reading and thinking rather than just reacting, which is probably not a bad suggestion. But of course, embedded in all of these snide remarks is the idea that good government means a government for everyone, not a government that's just for the owner class, which is to say socialism. That's what is meant by good government here. And this is really something that jumped out to me because I'm doing a lesson on political ideology in my modern world history course over the next two weeks. And my primary goal is to show students that the system we live in now, moderately regulated capitalism with a plutocratic representative democracy, that this system was constructed only very recently. And it was the product of a lot of verbal sparring and even some violent action that it didn't just come about uncontested. But one of my secondary goals is to do exactly what Shatterly does here, and that's to get students to just consider things they've never considered before and to make them spend a little bit of time reading and, and thinking about those things. And it's a lesson that I'm really looking forward to as well, because what we're principally doing is pretending that we're holding a constitutional convention around 1850 and deciding whether we want capitalism or socialism, whether we want democracy or oligarchy or monarchy, whether we want universal liberty or mass slavery. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the students respond to the readings that I've given them and, and hearing their arguments. The second thing I want to do in this segment is talk about Cats Have No Lord as a high fantasy novel. Uh, I want to look at how Shetterly employs the standard tropes. And of course, I want to compare these choices, these methods to what Dragonlance does, since uh, these were almost precise contemporaries. And it's not been that long since we did Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Now, I've already pointed out how Shetterly subverts the we-are-all-going-to-die-at-the-hands-of-an-evil-conqueror trope. And this, of course, is something that Dragonlance leans into hard. Uh, the return of dragons and the evil gods is definitely going to be bad for everyone because they want to institute a system of outright slavery rather than a system of economic oppression in which people still have some civil liberties. The two share some other common tropes as well. These are tropes taken from Tolkien to some extent. Cats Have No Lord and Dragons of Autumn Twilight both feature a half-elf as a principal character, and both of them focus on how this mixed heritage makes him an outsider wherever he goes. 
What I find most interesting about this comparison, though, is that Dragonlance models Tannis on Aragorn. He's a ranger with a profound sadness in his backstory and also a weariness about the importance of his mission. But Shatterly models Cat's Eye on Conan uh, from that other branch of modern fantasy. He's part warrior, part thief, and all mercenary. Both stories begin in an inn as well, or or at least that's where the parties get together. And of course, both stories are about a a role-playing game party to begin with, a a fellowship, if you will. And while Cats Have No Lord is not tied to D&D, it is basically a D&D campaign. Each member of the party has a different skill set that helps the party achieve its goal. And much of the fun of the story is seeing how that will work out, especially when it looks like it won't. And the world even has the feel of being constructed around the idea of character classes. Shatterly gives Gordia a rigid caste system in which people are defined by what they do. That's what character classes are all about. And there are wizard colleges and an elaborate system of religious orders and so on. And and each of these have their own special types of magic and, and, and so on. You get the picture. But the biggest, and I think the most significant way in which they share a similarity, is that they both have a heavy dose of religion. And this is what we spent the bulk of our time on when we did Dragons of Autumn Twilight, so I won't repeat all of that here. But Shetterly is also telling a story that is essentially a D&D campaign, but which is also very interested in religious institutions and religious cosmology. Uh, again, Shetterly is not actively promoting a specific agenda in this book. Dragons of Autumn Twilight may have been. But Shetterly is just asking us to consider whether we have free will or whether everything is preordained. He's also asking us to question the nature of the universe. Is this actually the best possible universe? Or is it maybe just an experiment conducted by God? An experiment that perhaps is not all that successful. And does any of this matter to us? How should answering these questions change our behavior, change our our actions? And these are great questions, and I think the political questions are great too. And I think it's a real strength of the book that Shetterly is just trying to encourage readers of fantasy books in the early 80s to think about big questions like this. And with that, I think we can slip right into our final segment and talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of Cats Have No Lord. Since we're on strengths already, let me add another. The book is pretty funny. It's not whimsical. This isn't Douglas Adams. This is not Doctor Who. But it's got a lot of, of snide humor. Mostly, this is character banter. And, and the dialogue is also generally great. It, it had a, a real Han Solo and Princess Leia feel to it. So if character banter is one of your primary values, I, I think you'll enjoy this one quite a bit. Now, the book does have some weaknesses. Principally, I just didn't love Cats Have No Lord. Not because it was bad, but because it didn't have any of the elements that I really want in my fiction. Uh, Dense prose, thick descriptions, extensive and well-conceived world-building. This really is a descendant of Robert E. Howard more than it is a descendant of Tolkien. So it just didn't have those elements that I wanted. And in that way, the book just wasn't for me. But it might be for you if those are your primary values, because I think Shetterly executes his story very well. But I do also want to draw your attention to something that you may not want in your fantasy books. There is a lot of sex in this book. And if you are a regular listener to the show, then you know I'm a prude and just do not ever want any sex in my in my books. But in this case, some of the sex here is really sexual abuse and some of it involves a child. It's part of the backstory of the Empress of Gordia. This made me really uncomfortable. I had a hard time continuing with the book after this scene, and and frankly, I just wasn't sure what the scene was for. Uh, For me, at least, it didn't humanize the Empress or or make her sympathetic, if that was even the point at all. Uh, But I think that you should know that going into this book. 
And and that's also something we can take up on the forum if you've got a sense of what Shatterly was aiming at with this detail, but why this child sexual abuse is, is in here to begin with. I'd also be interested if you have a way of synchronizing the political critique with the cosmological questions that Shatterly asks. Is there, in fact, a coherent worldview that he's promoting that I, I, I just missed? I would love to hear your thoughts about that. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, and by popular demand, I will say, we're going to be returning rather quickly to the world of superhero comics with the classic X-Men book, God Loves, Man Kills by Chris Claremont. And I have no experience with the X-Men, so this is something I'm very excited to check out. But until then, until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.